Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. In this Currents episode, we have on our regularly returning guest, John Robb, who's got a military background in the Air Force uh, and a key guy in building some of the technology uh, that we use on the internet every day. Uh, And these days is a writer about things strategic uh, and trend-wise about what's going on in the world. Uh, he's on Patreon, and I support him on Patreon. I encourage everybody else to as well for to support his important work under Global Gorillas uh, and or John Robb on Patreon. Throw a few nickels in his dish. Thanks, we Jim. want the boy to be able to eat, right? <laughs> Uh, as usual on the currents on the currents episodes, uh, I basically start with a single. Uh, artifact or statement or thing, and then spiral from there. And uh, what caused me to reach out to John today uh, was uh, he ran a couple of tweets, two or three, four, I don't remember how many, with excerpts from an extraordinarily interesting artifact. Uh, It's, I would describe it as an after action report uh, on the uh, siege and eventual capture and burning of the third police precinct in Minneapolis written, at least nominally, and it sort of feels like it, uh, by one of the participants. And it's, what, 34 pages long and uh, quite remarkable uh, explication of uh, kind of the dynamics that led to them being successful uh, in the plan. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, John, and say what you would like about that article and, and you know, tease apart, you know, strategy, tactics, that kind of stuff. Yeah, the one great thing about the way protests are organized in the States um, is that we get a lot of feedback on how things are organized. Um, people are you know, constantly writing about it, tweeting about it, posting about it. And this uh, article is pretty well written and um, it goes over the tactics and the thinking associated with the protest you know, from an insider's perspective, somebody who is trying to escalate the situation. And um, it goes over some of the, uh, the core elements, uh, you know, breaking uh, the protest into different groups of expertise, you know, people who focus on uh, medical support, people who scan uh, uh, outside media or telegram uh, or airdrop to get information into the protests and then back out. And then the, uh, the role of the peaceful protesters, the people who are there to uh, protest nonviolently, who tend to be the, the vast majority of the people that are protesting. Even, uh, uh, you know, talks about how the, the looters fit into the whole overall equation. So um, the interesting thing is, is the way that he thought about how they interacted. One thing in particular was what he saw was a reversal of the roles. I assume it's a he, uh, might not be. Reversal of the roles of between nonviolent protesters and the activists or, you know, people who are more kinetically focused. Uh, in previous protests in, in Hong Kong, for instance, the kinetic protesters were the ones who were protecting the nonviolent protesters from police encroachment, uh, you know, police violence uh, being pushed back, uh, being uh, driven from the field. Um, and 
in this protest, due, due to the volume and, and largely due to the nature of the protest, he didn't mention this because it is about police violence uh, and that the police were put on a, in, into a defensive crouch and were trying to de-escalate rather than engage on the whole in all of the thousands of protests that went on globally, is that the nonviolent protesters were extremely numerous and they were at the forefront and that they provided the cover for the uh, kinetic protesters. Usually people who are uh, using ballistics, meaning you know throwing water bottles or, or rocks or, or any kind of object at, at the police to you know, prompt them into action. And so the nonviolent protesters were the shield because the police weren't willing to barrel into them um, and, and engage with them. And that created a, an interesting dynamic in the sense that uh, the kinetic protesters were able to force the police uh, to widen their lines and engage in ways that uh, ended up proving detrimental to their uh, overall strategic position. Uh, they looked like they were aggressing on the nonviolent protesters, and that caused calls for uh, de-escalation. Um, in fact, the third precinct itself was was evacuated because the politicians in in Minneapolis wanted to de-escalate what they saw as a confrontation between the peaceful protesters and the police, um, and that um, that created a, a new set of opportunities for the way this protest will evolve over over the next few months. Yeah, quite interesting. As I was reading it, you know, I'm a player of uh, war games, typically uh, turn-based or quasi-turn-based, uh, sometimes real-time, uh, uh, computer-based war games. And if I, I suspect the author may have been as well, because he essentially calls out the various kinds of units. It reminded me of playing Total War Medieval or something. Right. Uh, you know, he talks about the, the nonviolent folks. Then he also explicitly calls out the ballistics, and then he talks about the specialty units, the laser pointer people, and he goes into quite de yep. good detail on how and when to use the laser pointers. He talks about the fact that uh, it's important to have people on uh, police scanners listening to what the police are doing. He, he goes into the yep. uh, details of uh, uh, information security. Oh, yeah, we, we use Signal because we know it's uh, secure, at least secure enough, but we ought to be using uh, on burner phones so that uh, stingrays, i.e. false uh, cell towers operated by the police, uh, can't get our personal information and track us. Uh, so right. uh, this, this was a person who actually thinks about unit types and, uh, and how the tactics combine with the unit types. Uh, he also talks about how the looters actually uh, help by being a distraction. Well, on three levels, he talks about it you know, being a distraction, but also providing supplies and also building morale. I mean, uh, remind me of my Clausewitz, right? Uh, right? As we know, at the end of the day, according to Clausewitz, the person who wins is the one whose will breaks last, right? And so improving the, the will and spirit of your crowd, the morale uh, is really important. Uh, and so I thought this to be a quite amazing, quite formal after action report uh, that, to my mind, painted a picture way more detailed than any I'd seen anywhere else. You know, I, I think it's really a good, good report. Well written, covers all the angles, does some analysis, trying to you know, determine lessons learned from the engagement, uh, is willing to learn, willing to overturn in, you know, previously uh, agreed upon tactics in, in favor of stuff that works. You know, trying to figure out how to use laser pointers in in the U.S. context, 
and that, you know, the dangers of using a laser pointer is that you get singled out by the police and hit with rubber, rubber bullets or uh, bullets that mark you. Uh, but if in a, you're in a dense enough crowd, you can pull it off. Or um, if you want to drive away helicopters, you have to have a, you know, a concerted effort by many people in the protest uh, acting at once. Um, so there's lots of uh, interesting insight from somebody who's clearly been on the ground. Yeah, my guess is this was not his first uh, ballistic episode. Uh, you know, the level of maturity of his analysis struck me like this guy has been has done this before. Right. Yeah. And they, you know, he's even talking about how they um, need to develop better ways of doing um, fact checking in the field um, that, you know, the same kind of thing that we do online when when. You know, we don't think as individuals completely in, in terms of verifying information anymore. We rely on our network to do it. Uh, is that when somebody comes forward with a claim, like the National Guard is 20 minutes away, or the and they're marching towards us, or the uh, if we burn this facility down, it'll explode, or that kind of thing, is that you have a large enough network of people who actually verify it for you. I mean, give you the kind of expertise, give you the kind of insight, gather the information for you, uh, so that crowd isn't herded or panicked into action that, that uh, will be uh, deleterious to their, to their goals. You know, it's, it's cool to see somebody uh, uh, engaged in open source warfare, thinking about how all the pieces come together um, and that they're, you know, more than just the uh, different unit types, there's people there with completely different motives for being there. They took a little bit about the uh, accelerationists, the from the on the right, the Boogaloo boys, and then um, you know how they you know tried to insert themselves into the, the early days of the protest. Um, but he doesn't really go deep into the different types of people that are showing up at the protest with you know their different motivations. So you know beyond that, because I mean when people look at it from the outside, they they, they tend to think of it. It has to be more than just you know, anti-racism, you know, given the size and given the, the composition of the crowds. Um, but the reason it still is anti-racist in, in its core form is that people are in support of that and they're there in large part because of motivations that extend beyond that. They're tired, sick and tired of the administration. They're sick and tired of all this, everything else that's going on in the world. And that this is a, something that's actually proven itself capable of, of you know, raising the large crowds necessary to, to uh, mobilize a protest. Yeah, and I, I think you're right that it's the, the signal comes from multiple sources. I mean, while anti-racism is the key and the core, uh, it's also, I think, a, a gr very closely related to racism, but not the same thing by any means, is the you know tremendous increase in the militarization of the police over the last 40 years. Right. Uh, you know, I remember being a kid, being a kid and being somewhat of a bad boy and uh, having my run-ins with the police. And I grew up in a place famous for its vicious, violent police, at least supposedly, Prince George's County, uh, Maryland, uh, are almost a watchword for bad police. But yeah, that well, they would cuff you upside the head uh, if you gave them any lip or lied to them. Uh, but but they were human, and they'd cut you some slack if uh, you were polite and reasonable. Uh, and they did not give off a militaristic uh, vibe. You know, if you fuck with me at all, I will shoot your shoot you dead. Uh, and 
you know, I think so much of the problems that come from policing in general, and particularly in the uh, you know black majority neighborhoods, is this uh, ratcheting up of militarization. Uh, you know, even small cities now have SWAT teams. Uh, you know, it's just uh, you know that, I think that really has pushed a lot of people to be looking for some serious systemic change. And you know, the the, the right. what seems at first an idiotic uh, phrase, defund the police or abolish the police probably has behind it, uh, you know, a realistic goal of let's rethink policing. Why have we allowed this hyper militarization hair triggerness to have increased and increased and increased every year, despite the fact that crime, both crime overall and violent crime has been on a massive decline for 30 years now? Right. Yeah. Um, There's four four times as many uh, SWAT teams now as there were in 2001. I mean, in all the excess military equipment and all those terrorist funds, uh, anti-terror funds, you know, flowed into the police departments and they bought this equipment in bulk and uh, hired a you know, bunch of people who did a lot of work doing counterinsurgency work in, in, in Iraq and other, in Afghanistan. You know, the, the militarization of police is probably the, the key point here is that, you know, maybe instead of defund police, it's, you know, demilitarize the police. Uh, maybe a, a better on point goal, and you know also you got to look at the you know the uh, the job itself. It's, it's surprisingly you know when you look at it, you find that it's it's not a profession, even though it has a power of life and death. It's it's not you know licensed and, and uh, controlled like a profession where you know you have requirements for you know training, minimum standards as well as continuous. You have licensure, you have ethics standards, you have an oath, um, and maybe this is regulated at the state level. Um, but the oversight of that should be done by a professional organization that's not a union and it's not po- politicians and it's not a committee of, of civilians. I mean, it's something that has a, a kind of enduring investment in making law enforcement a high quality activity. And if you do something that results in an infraction of that, then you should lose your license to actually practice law enforcement in the state, potentially nationally. So that kind of self-policing would, you know, instead of completely defunding police and is to, is to actually build it back up. Another thing is that if you look at the, you start diving into the kind of salary tables that a lot of you know universities have been kind of pulling up on, on, on um, state and local employees, you find that a lot of these police departments pay these guys extraordinarily well. I mean, Palo Alto being the, you know, one of the outliers, but there are guys pulling in with overtime 350,000 a year. And then he's not, those folks aren't unusual. You know, it's police sergeant, $350,000 a year is a, that's a lot of money. I don't care whether it's California or not. What this suggests is that, the, you know, these organizations, uh, you know, become a lot, very self-dealing and, and very protective and, and un, unwilling to change, unwilling to, you know, uh, adapt. Um, and then we may want to start thinking about like charter uh, precincts, like, you know, the privatization efforts that uh, where citizens have a lot more control over who gets the contract and who doesn't. Um, or, um, you know, cooperative law enforcement, probably, a, you know, evolved model from the community policing, which focuses more on the soft services. But, um, you know, citizens who are willing to step forward and spend time and take the training and do the training necessary to actually police um, and to do it in a much more cost effective way, yep. as well as, you know, much more responsive to the to community. But I don't hear any of those suggestions for the most part. <laughs> Well, I hear I hear them floating around. Uh, you know, there's a, a couple of people put out long lists of reforms that would make the police 
uh, more responsive and more responsible, uh, including the professionalization idea that you floated. And one that went with that uh, was a requirement, just as it is a requirement for uh, lawyers and doctors, that they have malpractice insurance. And then uh, the insurance under- underwriters would have a substantial amount of skin in the game to make sure that they uh, price the policies right. You know, so a cop that's got right. 31, uh, you know, reports for excessive violence, uh, you know, his policy is 300 grand a year. And very quickly, the uh, the town says, fuck that. This guy's out of here. Right. Uh, we can't uh, we can't afford right. three hundred thousand dollars a year for it. Uh, and, and, and then the other one that, again, you mentioned in passing, but again, had a total change uh, over the last 40 years uh, are the police unions who have unfortunately not only uh, work for improvement of pay and benefits, but have been very instrumental in developing uh, contractual methods to make it very, very difficult to even investigate a crime by police. I mean, typically the oftentimes in big city police departments that have strong unions, the contract literally says that uh, and it has the force of law because it's with the city itself that the police cannot be questioned by the prosecutors for two to five days sometimes if the officer interposes that right. right. And those of us who know a little bit about the inside baseball of policing, uh, therefore realized it was quite a, a smart tactical move in Minneapolis for them to fire the police officers, which then uh, made them not subject to the union interposition of investigation. Right. So those things need to get uh, need to be gotten gotten rid of. I mean, you know, I'm from a police family. My dad was a Washington, D.C. police officer for a full career, and then he retired, and then he went back and did some federal law enforcement. My uh, younger brother was a career federal law enforcement. One of my closest first cousins was uh, career police. So I understand the police perspective, but I do understand uh, that they need to protect, have protection to do their job and uh, to not be subject to vindictive uh, citizens. I mean, hell, every time you get a, cra- a traffic ticket for a borderline offense, it's very tempting to go make the police officer's life hell. Uh, and right. police need to be protected yep. from that. But on the other hand, you know, th- to be able to forestall a criminal investigation for you know felony misconduct strikes me as gross overreach uh, in the police unions, and that needs to be stopped. Yeah, it's um. But it's really hard to reform anything having to do with um, government employees and government services. There's just too much stop energy available. And they try to, you know, when they, whatever. They, yeah, that is true, though. Our whole system. Yeah, whenever they put these uh, civilian commissions together, you know, these blue ribbon panels or whatever, we've heard so many of these, had so many of these in the past. They, they come and spend 18 months writing a report. And uh, by the time a report comes out, no one, no one listens to it. Uh, the reforms don't get instituted. Nothing gets changed, and and the panel is disbanded, and they go away. Yeah. So you know what what we need is more uh, take advantage of this opportunity. I mean, I, I see these big you know consensus actions, these uh, big you know where the network pretty much agrees that this is something we need to do, like with the pandemic, and then and then now with police reform, is that you know we should take advantage of these opportunities to get something done. You know, every one of these things is a, is like giving us a gift to say in this area. In this zone of, of focus, we have the ability to actually do some meaningful reform. I mean, you know, we live in a you know a Cold War superpower relic, um, really not well fitted for the modern world. It's it's uh, not adapting well um, and needs reform and try out new things and 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 try to get some new energy um, going. And, and we're just not, and here's this mechanism for actually making it possible where you know. Every, Virtually everybody, I mean, 60% or so agree, 70% agree that we should go 
do some something substantial in, in police reform. I mean, the, the, for instance, with the uh, with COVID, I mean, there are opportunities that uh, presented themselves. Like, for instance, uh, you know, how do we stimulate an economy where it's laying flat on its back, and we're still kind of flat on our back? Well, we think new ways. We think in new ways, maybe an emergency UBI or or something that could get everybody spending all at once and get give people the confidence to plan out three or four or five months of spending uh, in the future, and and that gives them the ability to jolt this thing to life. Or um, we can't uh, it, during the pandemic we couldn't build an app for helping us track it and and beat it and continuously beat it because we didn't trust companies and we didn't trust the government. We didn't trust each other with data. We had this outdated model of privacy, of private data uh, versus a, something that actually would be dynamic enough to actually work like a, you know, data ownership, you know, where everybody owns their own data and then the government rents it for a period of time in order to uh, build an app and make an app available to allow us to be better prepared and, 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 and act as a unit against an external threat like this. Um, like like COVID was or is, um, but you know we can't. We're not making any of the reforms, and in, in large part we can't even see them yet. So um, maybe it's going to take another decade before we start to see these threats as opportunities, and we start to see you know, the new ways necessary to actually solve them. Um, yeah, maybe this time it'll be a little different. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, you know, the, the Minneapolis City Council formally voting to defund the police is kind of an interesting uh, more than a thought experiment, right? Uh, whether they actually go through with it, we'll see. Yeah, I think, as you know, our mutual friend uh, Jordan Hall just published a very interesting essay on Medium uh, titled Defund and Redesign Everything, uh, which, you know, basically reinforces your point that we're living with grossly uh, obsolete social operating systems. And maybe, just maybe, maybe, maybe this point is a tipping point where we are more open than we've ever been before uh, to an effort to really look at each of these things and say, yeah. Uh, yeah you know, uh, one thing I think we'll see out of this is that uh, in the near future is a return of something akin to Occupy. Uh, groups of protesters, you know, uh, taking over a space in downtown sprawling over and um, refusing to leave. I mean, the police right now are in such a defensive crouch and they're, you know, a lot of the aggressive tactics allowed them to throw people out during the, the Occupy movement aren't possible right now. Um, and that uh, the occupation can serve as a, as, a, as a good way to ensure that this protest doesn't completely die off. And uh, you saw a little early example right now, there's a, what they call the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle which is an early, early example of this. Um, suspect we'll probably see a lot of these um, in many major cities. Um, and in terms of uh, defunding, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens as a result of the defunding effort, like in Minneapolis. There was a hope that uh, uh, community policing or um, you know, maybe a new department that arises out of the ashes will be better than the one that they had. But uh, a wholesale reform like that's really tough, and it tends to not go well when you burn everything to the ground and try to rebuild it. But um, on the other hand, uh, people pull together, they could probably do a pretty good job of it. So we'll see, uh, see what happens. Though, you know, uh, early indicators are probably not that great. I mean, the, uh, did you see the video of the interchange between the mayor and uh, the crowd when they were at, you know, putting the question to him, you know, asking him whether or not he would uh, defund the police? 
I did not see it, but I've heard like second or third hand reports of it. So why don't you tell people what what, what happened well, and what the implications are? Yeah, there was a, a, a large crowd um, and some were up on a podium, um, the leaders you know, and the mayor was by himself surrounded by the crowd. And, you know, it looked pretty imposing. I mean, it, you know, he's probably, you know, pretty uh, scared when he was 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 being questioned. And they uh, said, OK, we don't care about any of this negotiation. We just really want to ask you one question. Will you defund the police? And he goes, no. And then, the, you know, his cat calls and, you know, the potential for him getting getting um, attacked was really high. Uh, they kept on screaming at him and then they opened up a corridor for him to walk, do a walk of shame out of the protest. You know, it's very similar to what you'd think would happen during a, the, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, or you know, very similar to even the Game of the Thrones kind of uh, situation. So it's it's not. I mean, it's it, it was an interesting dynamic, and it doesn't really um, point to a kind of a constructive in, engagement to you know to reform the police uh, given a defunding event. Yeah, that's uh, that's about exactly what I heard, and I had the same uh, reaction. This sounds an awful lot like the early days of the Cultural Revolution, uh, and we and uh, we remember where that ended up, right? Which is uh, uh, very ugly, uh, you know. So I, I I hope that people can take this moment and be constructive, but it may not play out that way, which is something we should all keep our eye out in terms of the branching of the contingencies here as this unfolds. I want to go back a little a minute here to your uh, suggestion that one of the things that may emerge from the new environment and the new sensibility of what's going on is a resurgence of something like Occupy. Uh, and put that back in the context of this after action report on the third precinct. Do you think that the circumstances at the third precinct were unique to that situation? Or do you think the, uh, you know, the tactics, the, uh, the unit types, et cetera, are more generally applicable to, you know, action in the streets uh, going forward? Um, well, the specialization works. Um, you know, specialization of roles, um, the fact-checking works across protests, the dynamic between nonviolent and, and kinetic protesters that works, particularly in this context, particularly in the U.S., how that it plays into something like an Occupy effort is pretty interesting because if you surround yourself with nonviolent protesters in a, in, in a strategic position, it then puts you in a position of uh, being able to bombard everything that goes by um, or, or keep up pressure on a, on a key building or a key location, either through fireworks and lasers and bricks or catapults like they did in Hong Kong. Um, and that it's incumbent upon the police to actually try to remove it, remove that location. And it puts them into a situation where they're confronting nonviolent protesters, um, at least according to the media and according to the way that things will be portrayed. And I mean, the story here, the narrative here, um, the pattern matching that's locking this this view of the protests in place is is pretty inexorable. It's hard to hard to see it any other way online, at least for the moment. And the, I think the other one uh, I was thinking about it while you were talking about Occupy. Uh, uh, the other tactic uh, that could easily be adopted is the one that the fellow in this paper talks about, uh, which is essentially taking advantage of. Uh, raiders, you know, in this, in this case in Minneapolis, looters. But one could ima imagine Occupy having fr flying squads that, you know, head out and you know, and raise chaos two or three miles away. You know, set 
25 fires in 25 uh, locations in various places to uh, pull off the police at critical moments to, you know, to thin, thin their lines. Again, you know, this is classic Clausewitz, right? Let's, uh, uh, or even the art of war guy, right? Make the guys spread out their lines before you make your defi- decisive move. You know, let's say where, you know, this Occupy is, uh, you know, in front of Goldman Sachs and their real goal is to burn Goldman Sachs to the ground. They could use this uh, flying squad uh, raider technique, you know, not very, not dissimilar to what both sides did during the American Civil War to you know, make life more difficult for the people confronting them. Yeah, it's, it's um, something that Hong Kong protesters did too. So um, be everywhere was one of their, mo- their uh, mottos is that if you uh, live far away from the main protest site, you can still contribute by doing things locally that would cause the police to split apart and respond to that. The looting was in, in particular is, is, is kind of interesting. In Hong Kong, they did it a little bit differently than here. The protesters use it as a way to align shops and businesses to their cause. Um, if the company was aligned with the Chinese government, which the Chinese government was trying to force through back channel means, through legal means, if the company was aligned with China, they would vandalize the storefronts, whether it's a bank or whether it's a big retailer. And they would leave alone the local businesses that supported the, the protest. And so you'd go down the street and you'd see pristine storefront, pristine storefront, and then vandalized bank. And in this protest, it didn't seem, I mean, they, the big box stores got hit. Uh, you know, a lot of the big chains got hit. Clearly, they think that there was aligned with the, the system as is. And there was a, a certain amount of self-identification of stores, local stores, locally owned places that that tried to, you know, say that we're, we're separate, we're different, they, whether it's black owned business or, you know, we support the protests or ways of indicating that they were aligned with the uh, with the protest. I thought it was kind of interesting though, in the uh, days following the protest, you know, when you in Boston and in other places, um, the local stores and local restaurants that got hit hard immediately turned around and said, you know, even though they're standing on in the ashes of their life's work, is that they're saying, okay, we support the protest. Granted, it's a genuine st- sentiment, uh, but it's also a self defensive measure. <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want to get hurt or, they, you know, again in the future, they want to, you know, align themselves with the, the crowd and their potential customer base. Yep. I mean, extortion is a very old game, right? right? The, uh, it, was the, it was the original business of the mafia, yep. right? And uh, we should expect that tactic to uh, be used as well. Because, you know, again, the thing I always tell everybody, when one group invents a new tactic, or in this case, a system of tactics, guess what? Other sides, maybe even their direct antagonists, are going to you know pick and choose amongst those new tactics and use them as well. I mean, you know, the nobody nobody gets a monopoly on coming up with a new set of tactics. It becomes uh, part of the common intellectual property of humanity, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it's uh, unclear that there's uh, much the police can do in order to counter this that won't get them in trouble in terms of you know amplifying the violence or, or responding to um, these attacks uh, de-escalation seems to help a bit you know accepting the uh, take a knee bend a knee you know kind of pledging support for the protest um, seems to de-escalate they've u- used that in rack to to de-escalate yeah, I will say that some of the a lot of the de-escalation seems to be coming from the young, very uh, thoughtful Black Lives Matter people who you know gone on the media and said, "Hey, we don't want this to be violent. You outside assholes, uh, stop doing that." And it basically has, at least for the time being, stopped. And so there is some moral 
authority, I think, that has been helpful in at least the later stages in the final de-escalation, or at least the current de-escalation. I don't want to say final yet. We'll see see what happens. Well, there's a there's a definitely a struggle between the uh, the nonviolent core of the protests and the uh, kinetic groups, and and the fact that even in the article we we're uh, discussing earlier, he had to mention that that if you are engaged in kinetics, that you have to do it as a group. Because if you're a lone person throwing a, a water bottle uh, or water bottles or rocks or whatever, the nonviolent enforcers will come grab you and eject you or isolate you and deal with you uh, in, a, in a way that uh, ejects you from the protest. So um, the group actually protects them against those enforcers from uh, uh, actually uh, imposing their will on, the, on how the protest is conducted. Amazing. Amazing. I think on that note, we're going to end it. This has been a wonderful uh, dive into, you know, sort of really thinking through what's going on and what new tactics are evolving and thinking through possible implications of that. So again, John, want to thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Jim. It's fun. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.